Welcome to the Knowledge Nuggets podcast hosted by John Ingram. Okay, welcome to Perf Web 75, day four. Um, I'm your host, Joe Basha. First time I've been in the newly tooled studio um, in, uh, in, in 2022. Uh, tomorrow, I'm kind of excited about tomorrow's program because we're going to be doing a simulation uh, with a new Eigenflow ECMO simulator, ECMO circuit and pump, uh, patient monitor, ventilator, uh, you name it, transonic ELSA meter, a whole bunch of different stuff. I'm really excited about it. We've we've done a lot to the studio that you're going to see over the next several weeks, more and more and more things. Uh, we, we can't throw it all out at once because it has taken us a while to figure out how all of this stuff works. But anyway, very quickly, uh, you know, our purpose here is to bring you the very best in perfusion education um, and really critical care medicine education. Uh, we uh, are involved not only in the operating room, but also the intensive care unit. And we really want people to uh, be included in these conversations. We uh, would like for anybody watching today who has an interest uh, to, if you look down at our scroll bar, you'll notice uh, over time, you'll see uh, contact at perfusioneducation.com, our website, reach out to us. Tell us you wanna be a part of the faculty, you'd like to give a lecture, we would love to highlight you. It doesn't matter where you're from, you could be from anywhere in the world and you can be a part of this program because we technologically have the capability of doing that and doing it well. So I'm really excited about a lot of things. Um, today's program, of course, I have to thank uh, our next, uh, the, the person who I'm going to introduce you to, John Ingram, who I'll introduce you in just a moment. Thank him for calling in on Tuesday, I believe it was, and uh, helping Tammy out on Monday, whichever day it was, and uh, being a part of the... Uh, of the uh, Tammy Sparacino Journal Club. But we've got a lot of different things going on, a lot of different programs. Of course, thankfully, COVID is starting to wane and the numbers are coming down. Hopefully, we don't have any super spreader events from the Super Bowl um, and everything else. So uh, we're hopeful that we are moving past the pandemic phase to an endemic phase and that it's just something we're probably gonna have to live with for a very long time but we certainly aren't seeing the kinds of cases we were seeing in terms of volume acuity and everything else so my own experiences things are getting much much better and i hope that is for you and your families as well um so let's without further ado let me introduce our speaker for today john ingram with his knowledge nuggets episode number 15 the first knowledge nuggets of 2022 and it is going to be on septic shock shock john great seeing you how are you hey great how's it going joe uh good to see you again you can hear me okay i guess i got a new computer we can hear you got a new computer yeah, I got a new computer for today's episode anyway. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, we so, can see you. We can see you great. You look good. Um, you look healthy. Um, I hope things are going well for you out there. Yeah, I'm uh, back in Key West for a couple days, and uh, we're coming live to you from Key West. Very um, good. And uh, still uh, coming down here and, and checking on the house once in a while, but still spending you know, almost all my time in Orlando working and Hopefully that transition of uh, more down to maybe 
one third time there and two third time here. I'm going to start. I'm hoping in July, maybe. Well, fantastic. Well, I'll tell you, you picked a really good topic. Um, septic shock, you know, so we'll just dive right into it, is a uh, is a devastating diagnosis uh, with an extremely high uh, mortality associated with it. And uh, being able to affect the mortality in septic shock patients by 10 percent is considered huge. Uh, in that uh, in that with that particular problem. Um, so I'm very interested to hear, uh, you know, your uh, your your lecture on basically what it is. Um, I, I'm hopeful that you're also going to talk a little bit about septic shock like syndromes where it's the patient isn't actually septic, but they're acting as if they are with all of the same, you know, uh, uh, blood pressure problems and cardiac problems and fluid retention problems and all of those kinds of things. So I'm going to turn this over to you, let you do this lecture, and we can have some, I think, robust discussions about this uh, after your lecture. So John Ingram, first uh, 2022 uh, lecture, Knowledge Nuggets, episode number 15. All right. Thank you for that, Joe. And um Excited to be a part of the new, uh, new and upgraded and improved uh, studio. I understand you've done some incredible upgrades there. The guys were telling me about uh, prior to the show off camera. So what we have is um, today is uh, episode 15, um, February 17th, I believe, 2022. Uh, I'm going to have to see how do I get that my my self off of the here we go okay fixed it i think okay so um the uh as as always if you guys have never watched the knowledge nugget show before um as always i have no disclosures on this or any other presentation that we've done so far and our motto here at knowledge nuggets and the reason we came up with the name is you can spend a little time and expand your mind we try to give you something you can really take home, take back to the OR with you, take into the clinical setting and actually apply and use. Because sometimes, you know, Joe, we go to a lot of these meetings and lectures and you come away thinking, uh, what can I really use from that meeting? And so this mm -hmm. is why we tried to come up with this program to try to hone in on things that hopefully people can actually use so that hopefully it's a, a valuable time spent. And I think if you'll see, um, on the next slide, you'll see that our format, we hope to find a noteworthy topic each time, something you can take home so that you can be a, a better clinician tomorrow. That's, that's my aim, that's my hope. And one of the things I also did was added a little golden nugget in the upper right corner of the screen. And that's something that while you're looking at the lecture and you're watching it, if you say, hey, you know, let me snapshot this. This is something I can tuck away. The information on this screen is is valuable and that's just something I can take with me. So look for those little golden nuggets in the right upper corner of the screen. So normally there's just a 12 to 15 minute high impact segment. Then we have something that's just completely unknown. It's a surprise. I picked something called the gem of the week, an interesting topic, a pertinent topic that we spend about three minutes on. And then we can conclude it with about a 15 minute discussion. But I will say that today's presentation being septic shock is probably going to be more like twice that long, something along those lines. This is a gigantic topic, Joe, as you mentioned, 
And um, I'm going to try to hone in on where the rubber meets the road on septic shock. What is really happening inside the body? And why do we see all these manifestations when we say that somebody is in septic shock? Any qu future questions, emails, comments on shows, suggestions for future topics, please email me at john.ingram at perfweb.us, and I will respond to everyone who sends me an email at that address. So please feel free. So let's start. So Joe, you know, I changed the background just for this particular topic because you had actually said something a minute ago that is exactly why I use this storm-like gigantic wave of a background to talk about septic shock because it is a tremendous storm that goes on inside the body, a tremendous wave of cascading events that brings us to what you said it was exactly right a very high mortality rate in the hospital is, is our attributed septic shock. And we're gonna look at that briefly. So yeah, it's like a it's like a with, tsunami. Yeah, exactly. So I, I use this uh, background just as a nice little uh, mix it up for this topic. So let's start off a little bit from the beginning so we can bring everybody into the fold, no matter what your education level is on this. And this list, what is the definition of just shock? When we say shock, well, when you say that someone's in shock, it's a critical condition that is brought on by a sudden drop in blood flow through the body. And generally that accompanies low blood pressure and low perfusion. So the circulatory system fails in some way to maintain adequate blood flow, decreasing the delivery of oxygen and nutrients to the vital organs. And something else people don't think about, Joe, is it also compromises your ability to remove waste. It compromises the perfusion of the kidneys and the kidneys' ability to do their job, as well as other uh, removal waste um, uh, systems that we have in our body. So it's not just a poor perfusion uh, uh, situation. It's complemented by the poor ability to remove the waste that we're producing. So let's look at, start off with the four main types of shock. There's cardiogenic shock, which is basically an inadequate cardiac function. There's something called obstructive shock, which is an extra cardiac obstruction to flow. In some way, the flow either into the heart, feeding the, the preload or the afterload is in some way restricted or, or reduced by some type of obstruction. So that's an obstructive shock. Hypovolemic shock is basically when we have an inadequate amount of blood volume. It usually is due to hemorrhage, but we're going to look at the causes of that. And then finally, we're going to talk about distributive shock. And sepsis falls under this category of distributive shock. And they call it distributive shock because it is a redistribution of the blood volume in your system, and that's what's important. We're gonna look at that and how that happens and why that happens. So let's talk briefly about the, the four ones so we can understand. Cardiogenic shock is a disorder of cardiac function, critically reducing the cardiac output. It's caused by a systolic or diastolic dysfunction, and of course that leads to reduced ejection fraction or impaired ventricular filling. So it might not just be that the heart isn't uh, pumping very well, it may be that um, it's not filling well in the first place. 
because of some, some other chamber not working well, like the atrium, for example, being in fibrillation. Uh, it's defined by a systolic arterial pressure less than 90 or a MAP 30 uh, millimeters of mercury below the patient's baseline that they normally, normally would have. And a cardiac index of less than 1.8 cardiac index without pharmacological support or less than two with pharmacological support. Now, in addition to these criteria, evidence of cardiac dysfunction is required. You must actually diagnose that together with the exclusion of other types of shock. So when we look at um, the cardiac dysfunction can be due to myocardial reasons, mechanical or rhythmologic changes, causes. So you have myogenic, which is acute coronary syndrome, basically some type of obstruction, blockage in the coronary that we see so often. And that's the number one myogenic cause. Cardiomyopathies can be in there, myocarditis, pharma, pharmacotoxicities, cardiac trauma. Then you can have a mechanical issue like an avalvular disease or an intracavitary, uh, intracavitary structures impending on the flow like a thrombus or a tumor. You can have a, a ruptured valve of some type, chordae tendinae, teared leaflet. Uh, any type of valvular issue could be the mechanical reason. And then you can have any myriad of rhythmic uh, issues, whether of, uh, of some type of bradycardia issue or tachyarrhythmias. So that would be the, the main three categories that you would fall under if you had cardiogenic shock. So let's look at obstructive shock. And basically, as I said earlier, it's a condition caused by some type of extracardiac obstruction of the great vessels or of the heart itself. Uh, mechanical intra or extravascular factors reduce blood flow in the great vessels or cardiac outflow. This results in a critical drop in the cardiac output and of course, global perfusion. The result is a state of shock with tissue hypoxia in the organ systems. Okay, so obstructive shock is disorders in, involving impaired diastolic filling and reduced cardiac preload. For example, vena cava compression syndrome, something imposing on the vena cava so that you have poor uh, return to the atrium, basically affecting your, your preload. You could have a tension pneumothorax, similar thing. Pericardial tamponade is gonna impose on the atrium themselves, pushing pressure on the atrium and a lot of times the right ventricle. And this is disallowing the blood that is coming into the into the IVC and the SVC, it's inadequate filling of the atrium. You can also have a similar situation when you have too high of peak. So that would be obstructive shock. So, hey John, may I, may I interrupt? May I interrupt one shock. second? Yeah, I'm sorry. Can you go back one slide? So, since we do a lot of ECMO, um, you know, I have seen circumstances where. We have had, um, you know, the tension pneumothorax I've seen uh, uh, many, many times. But the vena cava compression syndrome, if you end up where you're putting a line in and you, you're anticoagulated and you get into the uh, artery and you go uh, through it and retroperitoneal bleed and your belly starts to fill up, um, you'll start losing your ECMO flow for this very reason. You basically are not draining the inferior portion of your body. I've seen that uh, any number of times. Correct. We see this in ECMO. It's not uncommon to have some type of uh, uh, GI bleed or some type of, uh, like you said, retroperitoneal 
uh, uh, bleed where you eventually, you know, basically form pressure on the vena cava, and that's going to obstruct the return because it's right. under very low pressure. Anyway, it wouldn't take much uh, uh, pressure on the external uh, vena cava to restrict and, and reduce that uh, the size of the cava and the blood flow coming up back to the heart. So it's a pretty serious issue when that happens. And it mm -hmm. definitely affects your external ability to flow. So hypovolemic shock, looking at this one, uh, it's a condition of inadequate organ perfusion caused by a loss of intravascular volume. The result, of course, is a critical drop in cardiac preload. You're not getting enough volume coming back into the heart. And therefore, you have reduced uh, outflow, reduced macro and microcirculation, inadequate tissue perfusion, of course, and metabolism, and the triggering of an inflammatory reaction can subsequently follow when you have this. Um, you have inadequate organ perfusion due to hypovolemia, usually hemorrhagic causes, and it's usually used to a large blood loss. Um, you can have uh, a loss of circulating plasma volume, and it could be due to a fluid shift, but largely the fluid shift is gonna fall under the next and last category we're gonna talk about uh, so there's a little bit of an overlap between hypovolemic shock and distributive shock. But, but basically, you could also have a fluid loss that doesn't have to do with hemorrhage. For example, you could be, uh, you know, completely dehydrated from excessive sweating, urinating, diarrhea, vomiting, and lack of fluid intake and combination of those. So anything that's going to greatly decrease your circulating plasma volume, of course, is why it's called... Mm -hmm and falls under the category of hypovolemic shock. Yeah, can I can I also can I can I add to that also John? I Absolutely, mean this is yeah. such a broad topic, but I think it's it this is an important concept for people to understand is that if you are severely hypoalbuminemic, you can have hypovolemic shock due to third spacing of your plasma water volume and being hypovolemic intravascularly, but yet massively fluid overloaded extravascularly. Right, and that's why they do include fluid shift here because under hypovolemia, Magic. Um, it does fall, fluid shift is gonna fall a lot on the next one, which is where septic shock falls in under our distributive shock, but it does fall here also for whatever reason, if you had a lot of fluid shifting out of the intravascular space, you're basically gonna be hypovolemic in the intravascular, intravasculature, which is where you end up, regardless of, of uh, how you got there, hypovolemia obviously is gonna to lead to uh, a condition of shock and poor perfusion. And what's so, what's so interesting about that is you can go the opposite direction aggressively treat the hypoproteinemia, albuminemia, whatever the case may be, and uh, uh, reclaim extravascular fluid back into the intravascular space and put the patient into heart failure uh, by uh, fluid overload. So it could go both directions. Yeah, you have to be very cognizant when you're talking about fluid shifts, especially massive, uh, coming either out of the vasculature or reversing that and coming back in um, either not aggressively enough or too aggressively, yes, that's a good point, Joe. Um, I wanted to go over the four types of shock so we could understand why we're calling, uh, why septic shock is distributive shock 
and what distributive shock, distributive shock means different from the others. So it turns out that distributive shock, which is kind of a kind of a strange name, but it's going to make a lot more sense, I hope, of why it's called that in a minute when we discuss this even further. So the most common type of shock, distributive shock, is a state of relative hypovolemia resulting from pathological redistribution of the absolute intravascular volume. See, now that's why they call it distributive. The, the, the circulating volume is not because of a hemorrhage. It's because it's being redistributed from the intravasculature to the outside the intravasculature. So the question is, why is that happening and how is that happening? And so this is what's, um, what's interesting is that you have a redistribution of your circulating volume to the outside tissues where, of course, it is detrimental in so many different ways. But in the terms of shock, it leads to a, a, a low blood pressure, low perfusion state. Therefore, it, it, it creates uh, a clinical picture of shock. So when we look at this now a little further, relative hypovolemia due to a loss of vascular tone or the fluid shift in the interstitium. So when you talk about uh, loss of vascular tone, the volume is shifting within the vascular system. In other words, if you have a very narrow uh, pipe or narrow, very narrow blood vessel, and suddenly it's a very wide pipe or very wide blood vessel, that volume is still there, but now it's distributed under into a much larger uh, surface, much larger area. And it's not doing the, the job that it was once doing in terms of a lot of things, blood flow and blo blood pressure. But you also have fluid shift into the interstitium and distributive shock. And this is because of a disordered permeability of the vasculature, okay? So the result of these two things, loss of vascular tone, i.e. vasodilatation, usually on a large scale, and permeability of the vasculature, largely the capillaries, which we're gonna talk about, the fluid is distributed in a larger uh, circulate, circulation volume because your, your, your vasculature is so much larger and to complement it even worse, some of the fluid is shifting out, out of the vasculature altogether into the third space. So the result is a critical drop in cardiac preload, right? Because if all this volume is being held up in the vasculature and moving now much, much more slowly and it's being fluid shifted, you're getting very, very severe drop in your return of blood to the heart in your preload. So this drop in preload, of course, is gonna be a real drop in cardiac output, which ends up being a reduced macro and microcirculation effect. So there's three types of distributive shock, septic, anaphylactic, and neurogenic. And if you go to the next slide, David, I just kind of highlight these two. The reason why distributive shock is the most common form of shock is because, largely because of so many different things that cause anaphylaxis. There's so many different types of anaphylactic reactions that can cause anaphylactic shock, which is a form of distributive shock. But septics, septic shock and sepsis is also extremely common, all too common. So because of these two overwhelming factors, distributive shock is the most common form of the four types of shock that I've discussed. So now we're going to focus on the, uh, the septic 
aspect of why, why what for this lecture. So this is just a general chart, and I'm basically look at the center there real briefly. And shock in general is an imbalance of the oxygen supply and the oxygen demand. And you can either because of because of poor output, like in a cardiogenic situation, and that basically is going to be because of some problem in the cardiac function. And so your output is is poor, or you can have an obstructive uh, problem that is basically obstructing the large vessels either leading into the heart or out of the heart. And that, of course, is an extra cardiac uh, obstruction. And then, of course, you can have a volume problem. There's two types of shock that I just mentioned that are due to, to lack of volume, either hypovolemia, which is hypovolemic shock because that's a loss of blood volume largely, most of the time due to hemorrhage. But then you get to the final one, which is the one we're talking distributive shock. Distributive shock is a shift of the fluid, uh, not a blood loss and hemorrhage, but a shift of the fluid in the vascular space and without the vascular space, and therefore we end up with septic shock, and that's how you end up on that on that chart. So let's start it back a little bit further to make sure we bring everybody in. But what is an infection to begin with, and how do we get from a simple infection to sepsis and then septic shock? Because that is what the, the sequence would be. So an infection basically is the consequences of an invasion of an organism by a disease-causing agent, a pathogen. And it's a result of that pathogen entering our system and rapidly multiplying, which they are incredibly capable of doing, and they do do. Then they release toxins. We're going to talk about these toxins that they release. So they enter the body, they rapidly multiply, they release these toxins, and then you have the reaction of the host to these to this infectious infectious agent and the toxins they're releasing. So this is caused by a wide range of pathogens, prominently bacteria, but it can also be caused by, as we know, all know, viruses and fungi. And now an infection, when you say an infection, most often it's a localized infection, right? You have a sinus infection confined to the sinuses, a sore throat confined to that area, or maybe just have a cut in your finger and your finger gets um, red and infected, but it's contained to that area of, of the end of your finger. So most of the time, it's a localized infection and basically our body is able to surround it, attack it, and get rid of it. So something else happens when a localized infection uh, eventually becomes system-wide. Well, let's look and see what is sepsis now? So, well, sepsis, when you tell somebody, you know, the person is septic, what they're trying to tell you is that the person has got actually beginning to experience an organ dysfunction, and it's a result of a dysregulated host response, systemic-wide host response to an infection. This is what separates sepsis from an uncomplicated infection. When somebody says the person has an infection, okay, you understand that they've been an invasion of a pathogen. When someone says they have sepsis, now we have this widespread systemic dysregulated host response to the infection, and it's causing organ dysfunction. So the incidence of sepsis, however, is expected, by the way, to increase uh, going forward because of our several reasons, but one big reason is we have an increasing elderly population who is at higher risk for sepsis. We also have an increased number of people living 
with chronic diseases, cancers, um, you know, all kinds of COPD, uh, you know, all the things that have happened to people. And we're able to continue to manage people a lot longer with these chronic diseases, cancer, for example. So we have people living longer with chronic diseases at higher risk for sepsis. And then, of course, anybody who has immunosuppressive therapies, and there's more and more people who are living with, you know, recipients of organs and, and other things that are, are living a lot longer now. So all these three populations are growing. Now, as you said, Joe, it's a very high incidence of, of septic shock, and 30% of people who develop sepsis, 30% of those people will develop into septic shock, which is pretty scary. Um, let's look at now what causes sepsis. Well, most of the time, it's uh, a, a common infection. You can have, you know, like I said, some type of localized infection. Usually it's a pretty serious one, like pneumonia is one of the most common ones, intra-abdominal infections, genitourinary infections. These three categories of infections are the most common uh, likelihood for them to lead to uh, septic shock. And the, and the gram, very commonly, it's a gram-positive organism. It's also quite common that it can be a gram-negative organism, and I've listed a, a few of the ones there that are the most common, like Escherichia coli, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas. And then, of course, you can have sepsis caused by fungi and viruses. And I know, Joe, if you've seen enough ECMOs, you've seen people who have sepsis that are due to fungus, fun fungusemia, mm -hmm. and you've also seen viral sepsis, of course, which we've run into with, um, with COVID, of course. And those are very difficult to treat. So how do we get to this nomenclature of septic shock? Well, the word septic comes from the word Latin, meaning something rotten, or the word rotten. So basically, that's insinuating that we have an infectious pathogen in our system, something that is not sterile, and, and it's invaded us. And then shock, when you say some, somebody's in shock, this insinuates that somebody has a serious drop in blood pressure, i.e. a drop in blood flow, and of course, all that is equating to a drop in delivery of oxygen perfusion. So now let's look at the meat of the matter and let's look at septic shock. So sepsis, sepsis with profound circulatory and cellular metabolic abnormalities. So somebody can be in sepsis and not be in septic shock. They're dealing with a widespread infection, but they haven't developed severe drop in blood pressures, severe uh, organ dysfunction, and all the things that go along with that. But when you have profound, profound circulatory uh, abnormalities, generally leading to vasodilatation or, and volume shifts and drop of blood pressure, but then it begins to affect your function of your cells and your, and, and your, and your tissues and your organs. So feared complications in septic shock are that it could lead to multi-organ failure and it leads to hemostatic derangements leading to DIC, which we do see in septic shock. Now, the mortality, Joe, I think you mentioned something in the 30s. Depends on what you read, but almost every paper will, will, will fall somewhere between 30 to 50% mortality for septic shock. And septic shock accounts for 33% of all in-hospital deaths. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I actually felt that I actually thought that the mortality was closer to 60 percent 
uh, for septic shock. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe it has improved. Uh, there was a time when it was, uh, it was almost certain death if you develop septic mm-hmm. shock. Uh, we saw a lot of DIC uh, back in, you know, uh, uh, maybe a couple of decades ago or longer. Uh, but it has certainly improved. But still, 30 to 50 percent mortality for that diagnosis is quite significant. Yeah. Um, You know, it looked like we were making some headway on this, but with the aging population, the three things I listed here, the aging population, the number of people living with um, chronic uh, diseases, and then the immunosuppressed population, uh, we're actually losing our our grip on this. And and it's it's getting actually where the mortality is is actually starting to increase again Mm -hmm. um, from a lot of the research I did on, on this topic. So, the risk factors, which I've touched on a little bit, chronic disease, immunosuppression, anybody with prior organ dysfunction, by the way, and another big factor is delay in diagnosis or treatment. You know, this people dragging their feet to come into the hospital mm-hmm. because what we saw with COVID, but there's other reasons. Sometimes, you know, pre-COVID people just lived in a very, very remote area or thought that they could deal with it at home and they come into the hospital really way too late. So delaying them coming in or delaying us diagnosing it properly is actually a pretty big risk factor for somebody going from sepsis to septic shock. Mm -hmm. And of course, I mentioned the elderly as at risk for. So what is the septic shock pathophysiology? So patients over the age of 65 with immunosuppression or underlying malignant disease are disproportionately affected. Now, in some patients, the inflammatory response is either very small or non-existent, which is which is why uh, not too many years ago, when people would come into the emergency room, one of the key diagnoses for septic shock was they had to be uh, in a systemic inflammatory response in Sears. That's mm-hmm. not necessarily always the case. So that became not necessarily a part of the clinical diagnosis septic shock because there's a certain number of people like i think you said that earlier too joe where you are in sepsis but you don't necessarily appear fully as though you're in sepsis was that you were touching on in the intro yeah it was but i was also talking about patients who have a septic shock presentation but they're not septic right you they don't actually have sepsis but they have they have their their presentation is septic shock like right you can have septic shock without a pathogen and by the way septic shock syndrome without an invasive pathogen and by the way we see that when people have ecmo and sometimes you have with it with vasoplegia where the person is in uh, shock and they have massive vasodilatation that's unresponsive but it's not because of invasion, invade, invading pathogen. It's because of the massive inflammatory response. Mm-hmm. So let's look at this a little bit as to uh, what, what's happening. So generally, you would have a pathogen. Uh, to get to septic shock, it does depend on the, the, the pathogen load that you're exposed to and the vir- virulence of that particular pathogen. That's a factor. And then it depends on the host, the person themselves. The genetic composition and any comorbidities that they may have, that plays a huge role. But when these two things come together unfavorably, you can end up with a complex, exaggerated 
and prolonged host response to the infection that evolves over time. And this is how we have evolved to a condition of septic shock in, in general terms. Look at this a little more specifically now. So as I mentioned, septic shock is a distributive shock. We have a gold uh, golden nugget slide here. It's relative hypovolemia resulting from pathological redistribution of the absolute intravascular volume. Now, what's happening and why? The core of the pathophysiology and why this is a gold nugget slide. The core of the pathophysiology is the endothelial damage that occurs and the subsequent dysfunction. And this is what's gonna be the real focus of my talk here today as we go forward for the remaining of the lecture. The endothelial damage and what's happening there explains almost everything that we see manifesting itself in the patient. That's why I made this slide special. So this endothelial damage and then the subsequent dysfunction of the endothelium leads to the dysregulation of the vascular tone. It leads to the vasodilatation, the massive vasodilatation we see. It leads to this impaired distribution of the volume that I'm talking about, i.e. the volume shifting. And this poor functioning damaged endothelial and endothelial layer causes and allows inordinate amount of vascular permeability, which is another reason why this fluid is being redistributed to the, to the tissues. So it begins to explain a lot, the endothelial damage. So dysfunctional endothelium causes a variety of pathologies. It causes the hypovolemia, it causes the vasodilatation, and by the way, it also causes organ dysfunction, but I wanna point out that it causes specifically mitochondrial dysfunction and IE leads to impaired cardiac function. And Joe, if you've ever witnessed somebody in septic shock, a lot of times they're struggling with their, with their cardiac function and their cardiac uh, stroke volumes and, their, and their, their hearts are sluggish, although they didn't necessarily present with any type of cardiac abnormality. This endothelial uh, damage uh, and the things that subsequently happen have a direct effect on the mitochondria of the heart and decrease the cardiac's ability to function while, while you're in this septic shock state. And well, then, of course... Mm -mm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go, yeah, go ahead. Course, I'll, I'll bring it up. A damaged endothelium is going to lead to coagulopathies because the endothelium is what's maintaining our homeostasis for our blood not to clot intravascular, intravascularly, right? So damaged endothelium is a big, big negative and a big causative factor towards our blood now thinking that it needs to clot because it's coming in contact with something other than the endothelium because of its damage. So let's take a look at, um, let's take a look at this. So um, Joe, I actually handmade these graphics. I had to hand make these to explain what I want, wanted to explain. There was nothing I could, could steal online to make this my point. So septic shock pathophysiology is what I really want to uh, spend some time on here today. And I put a little note there in the upper left and I call, so you can follow the sequence here. I say phase one, basically the first phase of what's going on and it's gonna progress phase two, three, four, five and so on. So we can see how this is cascading from an initial uh, standpoint 
into a uh, endpoint standpoint where we get to severe septic shock and organ dysfunction and multi-organ failure perhaps. So phase one is a pathogen invades the circulation. All right, I think if you go to the next slide, I think you'll see that. Now, you know, um, normally when we get exposed to a pathogen, as I said earlier, it's a localized infection. Let's just say, for example, you get a cut on your, on your arm or on your finger. Now the pathogen has broken through and made its way past our protective barrier, the, the, the skin. And in the process of, you, process of you getting cut, the reason that you're bleeding and things like that is you've cut a number of capillaries along the way and the pathogen is now in the tissues, but the capillaries have been cut. And so as you see the blood coming along, you see red cells, platelets, and there's an occasional white cell. And by the way, the white cells only make up 1% of our total blood volume. And, and so they, they normally, the, the pathogen is really in the tissues and the capillaries that have been ruptured are gonna bring in some white cells and they're gonna be kind of in the tissue level with them. And, and the pathogen is gonna be kind of isolated, surrounded by the white cells. And then this is why you have a localized inflammation and a localized um, uh, infection. And the white cells are gonna be able to recruit more white cells, surround it, and get rid of the infection right there in the localized area. But when you see them you know, in the blood vessel, like I'm showing here, this now is something that we are not terribly equipped to handle from an immunological standpoint. So here it is, we have pathogens that invaded the blood vessel by one means or another. And you know, indwelling catheters, Joe, uh, uh, needles, you know, uh, uh, punctures, uh, and localized infections that can get out of control and make their way into the, into the blood vessel as well. There's many yeah. ways though that- Yeah, collapsing. So if we go I mean, to, that's, a, that's, that's how, how, how common is that now? Yeah, right. So go ahead to the, uh, to the next slide and we'll see that now the blood is coming in contact with these pathogens. And what's basically happening is, you know, the red cells go on their merry way and the platelets go on their merry way, but the white cells on the outlook for, on the lookout for these pathogens, they immediately will bind to, to the pathogens and seek to destroy them. And this is a little bit of a complicated thing, but what happens is these white cells immediately release a host, and there's a pretty decent list of chemotoxic agents, and I've put a few under there. This is not a comprehensive list, but number one is they release uh, cytokines. They release, release leukotrienes, peptides, complement factor, even platelet factor four is released. And these um, white cells immediately, immediately think to themselves, I'm outnumbered. They immediately, that's their immediate reaction. If one white cell comes into, into contact with one pathogen, it immediately believes it's vastly outnumbered. Like you're in a war, you know, you want, uh, you want to fight 10 guys against 100, or do you want to bring in 1,000 more on your side and now fight 1,000 against 100, right? So their immediate reaction is to recruit as many white cells as they can. So immediately releasing these chemotoxic agents which recruit white cells. So you have a vast recruitment and, and even additional production by our body, by the way, and release of additional white blood cells. So your normal range of white blood cell count is about 4,500 to 11,000. And what's the first thing that people look for to identify that somebody has 
as an infection is an elevated white cell count. And this is why, because your body immediately wants to elevate the white cell count to get outnumber the white cells need to outnumber the pathogens. Now remember the pathogens are reproducing very quickly. And we're gonna talk about that. So step one, the pathogen comes in. Step two, the white cells come in contact with the pathogens and they go into a, an immediate recruitment and release of, of, of a number of chemotoxic agents. Okay, so let's go on to the, the next step. And so now the bacteria, let's just say it's the pathogen happens to be a bacteria. Um, they are generating and releasing at all times endotoxins or exotoxins, okay? Now the exotoxins are an ongoing and they're generated and actively secreted by these pathogens, okay? The endotoxins remain inside the bacterial membrane and they're released as a glass dying stitch effort. The endotoxins are released only once the, the pathogen is being killed or is dying. So these things are so noxious that they continue to release these um, toxins as they're moving around the system. And then they have one last one that they release that they, they keep inside their membrane for when they're killed. So now you have the white cells releasing all these chemotoxins, and then the toxins are releasing all of these toxins into the system. Okay, so now let's move to the next step of what happened. So let's just take a quick look though, Joe, at a real life photo picture, uh, microscopic picture of our endothelium. And one thing that people, uh, we've talked about on our shows before here, but you know, a lot of people forget about the fact that we talk about the endothelial cell, but the endothelial cells have this lining of an endothelial glycocalyx, which is multitude of these fine hair-like projections that come up from the endothelial cell. And it's this glycocalyx that's really doing the large majority of the work of why the endothelial uh, layer and the endothelial cells do what they do. And as you can see here, they're negatively charged. And a lot of the plasma proteins and platelets are positively charged. And just to get off the subject for a little bit, Joe, you know, if you look back about 20, 25 years ago, when all of these bio-coated circuits were, were coming about and people were trying to come up with bio-coated circuits for our, for our perfusion circuit, largely what they were basing uh, their efforts on was to negatively charge the fibers of the oxygenator and the tubing and act as if it was endothelium by repelling the coagulation factors from adhering to the uh, tubing and to the fiber surface. Did you have a comment? No. Okay, so this kind of like gave the premise of why the tubing manufacturers, what they were trying to do and, how, and the reason why they were trying to do it because you're not gonna duplicate the endothelium, but you could sort of mimic uh, one of the large effects of the endothelium, which was to repel the positively charged you know, platelets and plasma proteins and so on. And therefore you'd have a lot less procoagulant surface. So getting going back now, so what I wanted to show this was that when you have these toxins being released by the, uh, by the pathogen, this glyco glycocalyx lever, the level, uh, uh, the glycocalyx uh, surface uh, and uh, is very, very vulnerable to these insults. These are not durable, tough guys. 
These are very fragile uh, uh, things. And in addition to the toxins being released, which are very damaging to the glycocalyx, the white blood cells mass release of cytokines and chemotoxic agents, they're also very sensitive to that. See, the body was really set up to fight localized infections. If you have a localized infection, the white cells surround it, they keep the toxins limited to that isolated area, and, and then they get rid of the uh, toxins on, on, on that isolated um, area. But now, when it's systemic-wide, and it's in the bloodstream, and you have now a mass release of toxins and a mass release of cytokines. The endothelial was not prepared for that level of insult. So the pathogens, mass release of endotoxins, and, and the white cell cytokines leave the endothelial cells themselves unprotected because it wipes out and gets rid of this glycocalyx lining and leaves the cell itself a little, I think the next slide, I kind of just circled the um, endothelial cell itself is right there, will become exposed directly without the glycocalyx there to protect it to these toxins, right? So this kind of gives you a, a real bird's eye view of what's happening on the endothelial level. So now when you've got destroyed glycocalyx, it's immediately going to result in damaged endothelial cells. And by the way, the glycocalyx is part of, and a very big part of, the endothelial cell itself. So a gold nugget slide, what I want people to understand, the linchpin to septic shock is all about the destroyed glycocalyx and damage to the endothelial cells. This is where uh, the rubber meets the road. This is the first and most important physiologic, pathophysiologic domino to fall. And you're going to see why this leads to so many of the things that we see in septic shock. So septic shock, pathophysiology of the tissue hypoxia cascade. How does all this, what I've just this described so far, we have a pathogen that's invaded, the white cells do their job, they release chemotoxin, uh, chemotaxis agents, and then the toxins are being released by the pathogen. How does that lead to tissue hypoxia, which is what we see? And septic shock. Well, I'm going to talk about each one of these individually, but all three of these occur simultaneously. But let me attack, attack one at a time. Uh, next slide, you see I'm going to highlight that we're going to talk about clot formation and capillary obstruction. Now, I'm going to talk about all three of these, but they occur simultaneously. So let's talk about clot formation and capillary obstruction, because we're talking about how do we get to tissue hypoxia from a pathogen invading our system. So here we have a cytokine storm there I've circled, and you have all of the uh, you know, cytokines coming in from release of the white blood cells. And then you have those bacterial or, or pathogen endotoxins. These are insulting and attacking the endothelial cell. And these endothelial cells are so damaged and so fragile that they actually will detach themselves as they die off from, from this, the, the surface they're attached to, which largely is collagen, by the way. So these endothelial cells now are actually being stripped off the lining of the, uh, of the, of the blood vessel because of these toxins. So now what you see is you have damaged endothelial cells that have now left 
their post and, and basically what's underneath them is just the supported structure that's holding the capillary and the blood vessel together, which is largely collagen. Well, what's going to happen when you have collagen exposed to the blood? Go ahead, Dave. You're going to have platelet activation. Platelets come in contact with collagen. They think they're out in the tissues. They think they need to clot. So you have a large amount of platelet activation. Now remember, this endothelial damage is happening system-wide. The pathogens are systemically wide circulating, releasing toxins. The white cells are chasing them down, releasing cytokines and so on. So I'm showing one single spot here, but imagine it on a very large scale. So massive platelet aggregation, forming clots and platelet plugs where the endothelial cell used to be. So here I have my own personal drawing again. So let's look at the capillary, Joe. As you know, the capillary is big enough just to pass a single red blood cell. So the red blood cell is coming through the capillary, and lo and behold, you have a section of completely damaged endothelial wall. Right? Go ahead. So, but unfortunately, the red cell cannot continue to pass through the capillary because the platelets had plugged it up, as I just showed, because of the collagen that was exposed on the uh, missing endothelial cell. So here is a completely clotted off capillary. And Joe, you know you've shown that slide a number of times with the uh, the flow monitor, the microvascular flow monitor. That yes, you I was thinking uh, about that. Right. And there were some great examples of capillaries that were being fully perfused, and then all of a sudden areas where the capillaries were basically not even, they were, they were like they were shut down. There was no blood flow through them, right? It was for different reasons. But that, that comes to mind when I think about that you're basically shutting down the flow of the capillaries. Yes. And this is okay. your DIC. This is your DIC pattern. And then eventually right. you have a consumptive coagulopathy. And then all of a right. sudden you're bleeding from everywhere because you've used all of your clotting factors up exactly where we're going with with part of this so looking at tissue hypoxia though so how did it how did a pathogen cause us to be poor perfusion well damaged endothelium endothelium begins to clot off with platelets if, and, and not only uh with capillaries by the way this could happen in in small blood vessels as well the, 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 the blood vessels you know pretty small blood vessels leading to the capillaries they're all getting endothelial damage as well all right so this is uh one big thing that's happening. So systemic-wide damaged endothelium stimulates massive platelet adhesion, subsequent clotting, resulting in exactly what you just said, Joe, consumptive coagulation factors. Fibrinolysis, by the way, is going to follow whenever you have intravascular coagulation. The fibrinolytic system is activated simultaneously, and then you can result in complex coagulopathies and possibly DIC, and by the way, likely DIC if this is uh, severe enough. So now let's look at the second one I talked about. So we have capillary structure and clot formation leading to tissue hypoxia. What about another thing that's going on due to the endothelial damage? Vasodilatation resulting in decreased blood flow. Let's look at that. So here and again, we have blood coming down a modestly sized, you know, small to medium sized blood vessel. And lo and behold, we have damaged endothelium there. Well, the damaged endothelial walls, okay, release 
normally release uh, the appropriate amount of nitric oxide, maintaining our vasomotor tone, right? You, all, you always have uh, things in our system that is a yin and a yang. The nitric oxide that's being released by the functioning endothelium gives us our vasomotor uh, vasodilatation, and then you have counteracting things that give us a modest amount of vasoconstriction. So we're in a homeostatic balance of the, of the natural normal size of the blood vessel. Well, in this case, the damaged endothelial walls now completely have lost their ability to regulate the proper amount of nitric oxide being released, and now mass quantities of nitric oxide are being released from this damaged endothelium, and this is a powerful vasodilator in the microvasculature. So you have massive amount of nitric oxide being released, so all of a sudden our blood vessel is now much, much larger, much more dilated. So if you see now what's happened is, in the last slide, there was only three rows of red cells, but they were moving through very quickly. Now you have eight or nine rows deep of red cells, and they're moving very slowly. You see, because it's the same amount of blood flow, but now you have a, a, a massive, larger uh, circulating pool. It's like if your, veno, your venous system is a capacitance system, right? If you have a dilatation of your venous system, you're gonna have massive pooling where the blood is there, but moving very slowly. So what happens is mass pooling of blood in the macrovasculature is gonna greatly decrease your preload. The blood is not making it back to the atrium very swiftly at all. If you don't have good preload, if your CVP goes from eight or 10 to one, that means very little blood is coming back to your atrium, but it's all pooling in your vasculature because of this nitric oxide. Severe drop in perfusion, severe drop in delivery of oxygen. So mass nitric oxide release causing powerful vasodilatation in the microvasculature. And this is what's called as a volume shift in distributed shock. The volume has shifted within the vasculature in a much larger uh, system now, right? It's the same amount of volume, but it has a much larger space now in which to occupy. So let's look at the third one. So we have capillary obstruction clotting off our capillaries and small vessels. Then we have massive vasodilatation, which is a greatly decreased amount of blood flow throughing, through those larger vessels. Let's look at edema and decreased gas exchange, which is the result of edema. So this damaged endothelium, it causes increased capillary permeability. Capillary vessels need to be permeable normally to allow the movement of fluids. This happens on a regulated basis, a controlled basis. An increase in capillary permeability is often seen as a result of the inflammatory process. This happens, you know, when you have an inflammation. Uh, basically, why does your cut finger get all red and inflamed? Because you have fluid accumulation, you have blood going to the site, and you have the toxins being released there, but you also have increased capillary permeability, which is why you have swelling largely. The cytokines, the interleukins, the free radicals, the complement, all of these things are, are uh, a result of what happens when you have increased capillary permeability. Now, the third spacing, third spacing itself is frequently observed in a number of conditions, burn, injuries, trauma, pancreatitis, and now, as you see, and sepsis because of the damaged endothelium. 
So what is the problem with this? Why is this even a problem? Well, let's look at a normal uh, capillary blood flow or through a blood vessel in general, but let's look at the capillary microcirculation. You have blood coming through and you have the normal amount of hydrostatic pressure. The normal pressure in the capillary is gonna force some fluids to pass through the, the capillary membrane. And then you have the osmotic pressure being the protein levels much higher in the vasculature than the tissue is gonna bring that fluid back over because of osmosis and the interstitial fluid remains balanced. And as it exits the capillary, through the venous end, you basically have a normal tissue situation where you're not walking around every day dehydrated in your tissues, nor are you walking around edematous because of this balance of the hydrostatic pressure pushing fluid out and the osmotic pressure bringing it back in at an equal rate. What happens in sepsis, though, is that you have this capillary permeability increase. Well, now you have a large amount of fluid moving out into the tissues. And so you have a great increase and your interstitial fluid, i.e. edema and swelling, right? We see this in patients all the time. Well, why is that a bad thing? So let's look at the, the drawing that I made up for this. You have your blood cell coming through a capillary, and there's your tissue cells right on the other side of the capillary. And that's all fine and good. And normally, you're going to have gas exchange. You're going to have a, free, a freely moving oxygen leaving the red blood cell into the tissues and carbon dioxide being transferred back into the red cell. And it's, it's a very uh, nice, smoothly moving system that, to perfuse our tissues. Well, when you have increased capillary permeability and a lot of fluid now, plasma water, is being uh, sent out through the capillaries or being allowed to escape through the capillaries into the tissues now because of this uh, damaged endothelium, and increased capillary permeability, what happens next is you have all this fluid that's now accumulated that is now, by the way, uh, obstructing the ability of gas exchange because normally the, the CO2 and the, C, and the oxygen doesn't have to perfuse through this massive amount of layer of fluid. Uh, you know, it, it, it's basically able to access the cells. So now, you have a very much uh, inhibited ability for free gas exchange to occur at the tissue. So here again, hypoxia because of capillary permeability leading to uh, a fluid shift into the tissues, obstructing the pathway of, of uh, a gas exchange leading to tissue and organ hypoxia. So let's just talk about for a second, because I mentioned it earlier, the myocardial dysfunction, which isn't of itself a separate thing. And by the way, Joe, you could spend, you know, so many hours on this topic because each organ, by the way, is detrimentally affected by sepsis. But I just wanted to focus a little bit on the myocardium for, for our topic here today. And this cardiac dysfunction due to severe sepsis, uh, you're basically going to see impaired contractility, diastolic dysfunction, reduced cardiac index, reduced ejection fraction, all the things that are classic of a poor cardiac output. Um, and this cardiac dysfunction, though, I mean, I mentioned that each organ is struggling due to hypoxia and all the things I just mentioned. But when the heart begins to dysfunction, you know, this is a additive aggravation to the other organs because you need this circulation 
to this this heart is the pump, right? It, it, it is the additive effect that leads you to multi-organ failure because it with, without a, with a poor functioning heart, you have that much worse perfusion on top of the things I already talked about. Septic patients with either systolic or diastolic function or both have a higher mortality than those diagnosed with sepsis that do not have a diastolic or systolic dysfunction. The mechanisms that underlie myocardial depression during septic shock are actually not all that well known. There's some, so just things we don't know exactly of why this is happening. So just going on with this a little more, the, circulate, the circulating inflammatory cytokines, the interleukins 1, 8, PNFA we talk about a lot, which are increased during septic shock, these cause an altered production of the nitric oxide, but also they alter the calcium homeostasis. And all of us know calcium is absolutely vital to the inotropic effect of the myocardium. You have the impaired beta, beta adrenergic signaling, right? Your beta uh, signaling is impaired, and that's going to lead to reduced cardiac contractility. So altered calcium uh, homeostasis, impaired beta, beta signaling. Cardiac dysfunction is a consequence of impaired metabolism and also reduced energy production in the, myo in the cardiomyocytes. So now you have the ATP ability to produce uh, being decreased also. So pretty serious impact on the myocardial cells here when you have severe sepsis. So it's a little bit of a um, busy slides, but I'm gonna put it up one at a time. There's five stages of, of overlapping sepsis cascade, okay? It starts with the, the, the Sears response and progresses to uh, multi-organ dysfunction, if not appropriately counter-compensated by something called CARS, which Joe, I think you got, you might've mentioned that the other day in your, in your talk, the um, comp compensatory anti-inflammatory response which a lot of people don't talk about. We always talk about Sears, is the systemic inflammatory response, but for every reaction, there's usually a, a counter reaction, right? Well, the body has something called CARS that also, by the way, kicks into gear simultaneously with the Sears response. And that is an attempt to, to modulate and to temper down the Sears response. Okay, so stage one is a local reaction to the site of injury, like I mentioned, and, and the, uh, the reaction of the body is, is attempting to contain the injury to limit the spread. Leukocytes uh, release cytokines, and the whole process goes into a local inflammation, vasodilatation of the local area by nitric oxide, endothelial cells allow white cells into the tissue to try to surround the invading organism, and you have swelling and you have pain, and, and the area feels hot. Well, stage two is when the CAR system the compensatory anti-inflammatory response syndrome attempts to maintain the immunological balance. There's a stimulation of growth factors and recruitment of macrophages and platelets as the level of pro-inflammatory mediators decreases to maintain homeostasis. Now, when the scale tips towards the pro-inflammatory Sears response, resulting in progressive endothelial dysfunction, which is why I focused on that, and the activation of the coagulation pathway, which is why I focus on that, it results in end-organ microthrombosis, as I demonstrated. 
and capillary permeability, as I demonstrated, and eventually resulting in loss of circulatory integrity. Now, if the CARS response can keep the SEERS response in check, people basically do not go into sepsis or septic shock, and they get over the infection. It's when the tipping of the scale and the SEERS response greatly outdoes and outnumbers and outweighs the CAR response that you get into what we're talking about. Stage four is characterized by later in the, in the stage of this where it actually does overcome the SEERS response. However, this results in a state of relative immunosuppression. When the CARS response finally does overcome, which by the way does happen in nearly every patient, if the patient is gonna survive this, at some point the SEERS response is very tempered down, but the CARS response now has become dominant. And this actually puts the patient in a state of relative immunosuppression. And therefore, the individual now becomes susceptible to secondary or nosocomial infections, thus perpetuating the sepsis cascade. Step five now manifests itself in the multi-organ dys uh, dysfunction, the mods with persistent dysregulation of both the Sears and the CARS response, you know, seesawing, one's winning for a while, the other one wins. They both have their negative, negative effects when one dominates too much over the other, because normally these are in balance. At the cellular level, noxious stimuli, like I said, from cytokines, as well as the endotoxins produced by the pathogen, activates a multitude of things, as I mentioned, and uh, this is gonna cause your organ damage back to uh, coming full circle on that. So let's look at real Surviving quick, sepsis, this was not yeah. the focus, was, wasn't the focus of my uh, lecture was the diagnosis or the treatment, but I wanted to hit on it briefly. Somebody comes into the emergency room, there is a, something called the surviving sepsis guidelines. Basically, you need to identify the presence of an infection or suspect an infection, you may not be have it diagnosed, but you suspect the infection, and two of the more two or more of the following criteria: hypotension, systolic blood pressure less than 90, or decreased 40 from the baseline, a MAP lower than 70, and a lactate greater than one. So you used to have a presence of an infection or suspicion, and combined with two, at least the two of those three things in addition to that. Also, uh, according to the, uh, the sepsis guidelines, um, you need to you know, look at uh, the presence of an infection together with systemic manifestations. So the person comes in to the ER and they have their tachypnic, they're breathing rapidly, or by the way, they may not be breathing all that rapidly, but on a blood gas, their CO2 level is less than 32, shows that they're hyperventilating. Uh, white blood cell count, either less than 4,000 or greater than 12,000, those, those two things we can talk about. Sometimes you have an initial drop in your white blood cell count, but most people are gonna come in with an elevated white blood cell. You're tachycardic. Why are you tachycardic? Because you're vasodilating, your, blood's, your, your heart's trying to compensate for your, for your uh, drop in blood pressure, and also you're becoming hypermetabolic. Your temperature is spiking above 38, or counterly, you could have that below 36 would also indicate that something very serious is going on with your dysregulation. So the treatment is very complicated, but there's a simple, uh, something very, very powerful and very important to any clinician, critical care medical doc that 
treat sepsis patients, something called the three-hour sepsis bundle. These are things that when someone comes into the emergency room, these things must occur within the first three hours. And by the way, it's actually been changed to a one-hour sepsis bundle because the sooner has a much bigger impact. But within three hours of the person walking to the ER, suspicion of sepsis, you need to obtain a blood culture, obtain a lactate level, administer broad-spectrum antibiotics before you even get that blood culture back, get blood broad-spectrum antibiotics, get them started, and administer 30 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid fluid. This is because of the shock and, and because of the drop in blood pressure the patient is feeling. This 30 milligrams per kilogram is a very uh, 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 tried and true uh, a technique that people need to get that general amount of fluid. Now, it does get a little skewed when you have very high BMI patients and very obese patients. You can't quite go by this exactly. That would be the, one of the exceptions to the rule. But when people are vasodilated in shock, they need that volume because of the vasodilatation. Now, there was a study I just want to talk about on this surviving, sepsis survival uh, campaign, the three-hour uh, guideline I just talked about. Uh, Prinelli uh, and her colleagues, I believe it was her, but there were a whole slew of, the, of PhDRNs on this article, too many to list there. Um, and they did a very comprehensive study on the effectiveness of the people getting all of these four uh, uh, treatments in that first three hours and the impact. And if you didn't get it within three hours, what was the impact? And from July, uh, from January 2011 all the way through the middle of 2015, this encompassed, this study encompassed six hospitals and 45 clinics in the Midwest area of the United States, over 5,000 patients with severe sepsis or septic shock were in the study period. There were 1,412, or nearly 28% of the patients who died in the hospital. Now, the majority of these patients had all four of the three-hour bundle recommendations done within the three hours. However, from the 214 patients who did not receive any of the recommended actions within the three hours, 41% of those people died. So just in general, from this article, if you look at the dotted line, that's the uh, mortality on the left and the delay in, in getting the three-hour bundle completed along the bottom. The dotted line shows the longer you, you delay and don't get around to this treatment in the three-hour bundle protocol, the, the mortality goes from roughly about 30% where everybody starts up to about 45%, but the patients who got the three-hour bundle, they had a decreased mortality of about to about 28%. So a difference from about 45% if you didn't get treated properly in those three hours to down to 28% mortality if you did get that three-hour bundle properly. So now we're going to go on to the gem of the week, Joe. This episode's gem of the week is going to be something very interesting that just came out two days ago I discovered this. Dr. Sederwick just published this in Psychology Today on their online version of Psychology Today. It just came out in 2022, February. They've discovered a striking link between your vitamin D levels in your blood and the Omicron and other COVID-19 variants. Let me show you what we're talking about here. It's fascinating. In his article here, he talks about that low levels of, are associated, low levels of vitamin D, 
in your blood are associated with the severity of the Omicron and all the other variants, by the way. It wasn't specific to Omicron, even though that was in the title of the article. It had to do with all variants. They found a striking differences in the chances of contracting severe COVID-19 between individuals with sufficient levels of vitamin D prior to catching the virus and those who did not have sufficient levels of vitamin D when they caught the virus. Half the vitamin deficient vitamin D deficient people develop severe life-threatening illness compared to just under 10% of those who had normal levels of vitamin D. The study is the first to examine existing vitamin D levels in the people before they contracted COVID. This is a quote from the article, Dr. Sidowick's quote, we found it remarkable and striking to see the differences, the difference in the chances of becoming a severe patient when you're lacking in vitamin D compared to when you are not lacking the vitamin D. They're gonna be a little more specific here. 253 people were admitted to a hospital between April 2020 and February 4th, 2021. A period of time, by the way, that was before Omicron appeared, but they discovered later that they did have plenty of Omicron patients in their cohort, as it turns out. It just, we didn't know that, that it, was, it, had been, it had been announced during the time. The results were equally relevant for Omicron as well as for previous strains. Didn't see any difference in this. Vitamin D is largely synthesized naturally in human skin and requires direct exposure to sunlight, specifically ultraviolet B light. Now, artificial light under a sun lamp, no matter how good or how high the quality, isn't gonna cut it when it comes to manufacturing vitamin D. Now, what's happened is the pandemic has kept many people indoors for nearly two years. A considerable number of individuals may have fallen below the threshold for adequate vitamin D levels, which conventionally is supposed to be about 20 nanograms per milliliter in your blood. And by the way, you can get this tested and they can tell you what your vitamin D level is. New data indicate that the 20 nanograms per milliliter is too low. A minimum level is now recommended of 50 is now advised. Levels below this cause weak, innate immune responses they've discovered. Now, what's the vitamin D guidelines? Diet plays a small role in vitamin D intake. It is found in, in a number of foods, but by the way, they're not very high levels, even in these foods. Fish, mushrooms, egg yolks, full-fat yogurt, beef liver, and duck have vitamin D. Not a lot, by the way. Um, is recommended, the guidelines recommend that we take 2,000 IUs or 50 micrograms of vitamin D daily, but do not exceed 100 micrograms a day. You can overdo it, by the way, in vitamin D because your body stores vitamin D. Now, individuals who get little or no sun exposure, people with a body mass index of greater than 30, these are all people at risk for low vitamin D. If you have obese patients, by the way, have typically a low vitamin D level, which right, Joe, haven't we seen that obesity is definitely a, a very high comorbidity when it came to COVID? It's huge. <clears throat> huge, right. Now, if you have, if you never get out in the sun, you have, might have a risk of low vitamin D. If you have a BMI greater than 30. Now, dark skin individuals, the pigment in their melanin actually reduces 
the skin's ability to make vitamin D in response to sunlight. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. Your body stores it for months, and you don't necessarily need it every day. What we mean by that is, because the top of the slide says, take it every day. Your body stores it. If you skip or miss a day or two, you don't need to be in panic mode. Your body stores it, and it's going to release it. The stores are going to be released, keeping your levels higher. Now, you can have vitamin D toxicity, but you have to take pretty extreme large doses of vitamin D uh, every day for quite a while. But it is not a good thing to get vitamin D toxicity. So in conclusion, guys, there's the website again to reach out to me if you want to contact me about email questions, comments, suggestions. I'd love to hear from you guys. And I think we're ready for our uh, dis panel discussion. Well, that's a lot of information, Joe. What do you think? That was an excellent, excellent uh, overview of uh, septa, sepsis and septic shock. Um, and, of course, it, you, you, you would need several hours, I think, to go over everything uh, that you would have to to really understand it. And even then, I don't think you could. Um, the treatment, there's been so much done with this. And so... In interest of time, everyone that's watching and so forth, we I, I'm going to schedule a uh, a session on the treatment for septic shock because giving fluid administration, of course, you can go all the way back, and I've I've mentioned Schumacher before and Rivers before, and these guys that have been treating sepsis with uh, with hyper uh, uh, increasing DO2 to supranormal levels um, in these patients to try and manage this. And of course, you started talking a lot about the uh, third spacing problem that occurs and the organ dysfunction that's secondary to that. And of course, as you see the patient, you've seen that slide from the other day with that patient that was all swollen. Well, the organs look like that too. So a lot of the mitochondrial damage you were talking about in cardiac function, but you get myocardial edema as well. You get renal edema, you get hepatic edema, you get pulmonary edema, you get generalized tissue edema. And so you lose your oxygenation capability, your O2 delivery, if you will, you know, going to the tissue. So you start starving the tissue of nutrients um, and you start increasing the fluid volume even more. And you and it's just a, a, a horribly uh, uh, it's a horrible cascade of of, of of reinforcement to itself, bad reinforcement to itself. One thing leads to another, which leads back to the other. It keeps going around in a circle. Um, of course, you have to worry about, uh, you know, your, your protein levels in your blood. You know, capillary leak syndrome is dreadful because now you don't only have fluid leaving uh, or, 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 or water leaving, you have proteins leaving and if you treat that with albumin you can find yourself in even more trouble because your proteins are leaking out into the interstitium and that's a another cascade I, I will say this i don't know if you saw the article or not i'm gonna dig it out and uh, i think we need to i think we need to do this topic again in terms of the treatment but they're actually beginning to advocate the use of ecmo for severe septic shock and uh, that's to, you know, manage the circulatory 
flow problem that you have when you have this massive vasodilatory effect, you have this preload problem, you have cardiac dysfunction, both primary and also secondary from the fluid redistribution problem and alleviating that and getting oxygenated blood flowing through the organism, through the body is going, is, uh, it, it looked promising, at least the article that I read, but that's a whole, that's a whole day's worth of talks just in the one yeah, thing. I, it's such a complicated I wanted, problem. I wanted, just to I wanted just to throw up one slide about diagnosis and one or two slides about treatment, but those two things, diagnosis, can you can spend an hours on that, properly diagnosing septic shock and everything to do with it and what's going on with the patient at what stage they're at. And then the treatment, I just threw in the quick emergency room person walks in. There is a whole ICU uh, uh, a scenario of treatment that has to do with with about a dozen different aspects of the clinical picture that we mm -hmm. need to pay attention to, uh, way beyond just uh, giving them some fluid. This was the I didn't want to you know in the you, you can't put so many things in a lecture you'd be here for five hours talking about it right. So I want to just throw up the the quick down and sure. dirty of when people walk into the ER, but the treatment goes on for weeks and it's. And it's ICU, and it's a whole, you know, world of of things to to manage there as people go through this. And then, you know, when the Sears response maybe does subside, and the Cars response now is predominant, it's interesting. And you, you've seen people who they say of septic shock, but it's multi pathogen. Mm -hmm. It's not just one pathogen yes. that they discover they have. Yeah. And this can happen when the Sears response tempers and the car's response becomes more powerful and it's a little bit of an immunosuppressive effect because it's trying to temper down the, the, the effect of this, the Sears response, which is an attack on the pathogen. It's tempering that down. Well, if it goes too far the other way, it's almost an immunosuppression. And now you can get a nosocomial infection in the hospital or, or from something else, you know? Sure, absolutely. Um, but of course, we didn't even touch on, and, and again, it, it, I understand it's impossible uh, to do that, but you have CRRT, how can that benefit you? Um, you have the Cytosorb, which Tammy just got through talking about, and how can that help you in attenuating this massive inflammatory dysregula dysregulation that's going on and being able to modulate that? Then you have the stuff that I think Dr. Simpkins had talked about once before with the nitric oxide uh, attenuators and redistribution uh, solutions that he has, um, that he's working on. There's so many things that are being uh, that are being uh, uh, looked at um, and how we manage these patients. But I'm struck by how how can we be a part of that? Um, I think the CRRT and the Cytosorb are two very important things. And of course, I think uh, if ECMO is something that can be beneficial, then I think that's something we need to be looking at because, you know, we're very we're very comfortable with thinking about well, VA ECMO for a, a PE protocol. You know, if you have a PE team and that's what you're going to do to manage those patients, um, these patients too are suffering from uh, circulatory collapse. And if you don't have, not only do you now have the problem of your nutrients getting to the tissue, you have the circulatory system not even able to deliver the nutrients to where they need to be 
poorly being utilized. So it is that cycle that we see frequently occurring. And how can we be a part of solving this dilemma uh, for patients who have, again, predictably very high mortality? Yeah, I mean, you saw how one of the big first early steps of this whole demise of the endothelium was a large release of the cytokines, mm-hmm. right? An enormous release of the cytokines by the by the white cells who are panicking to to the fact that they may be outnumbered. So they're recruiting as heavily as they possibly can. And uh, they only stop doing that, by the way, when new white cells, white blood cells, leukocytes, stop running into more and more pathogens, mm-hmm. right? The new white blood, show, white blood cells show up, but if they run into a whole crowd of pathogens, they release that much more cytokines. Mm-hmm. And so on a localized infection, white blood cells show up, they release the cytokines, but the new white blood, show, white blood cells show up, but they don't run into any more pathogens. The white cells that were there have already surrounded the pathogens and it's becoming you know, contained. In a systemic-wide system, the white cells that are new white cells on the scene keep running into more and more pathogens. So it's a snowballing why they call cytokine storm. In the meantime, the endothelium is ill-equipped to handle this level of cytokine uh, circulation in our system. And then if you have that many pathogens, these are purposely releasing toxins. The endothelium is ill-equipped to handle large levels of endotoxins being released by the pathogens. And then so you're killing it, and even mm-hmm. then you're killing it, and then endotoxins are getting released, and those are even just as damaging. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the nitric oxide gets released by the damaged endothelium. That causes a problem of mass vasodilatation and dropping blood pressure. So, if we could temper down the nitric oxide uh, a quantity that's circulating, that might help. If we could temper down the cytokine storm or the cytokine release, I mean, we the damage to the endothelium might be might be less, but then maybe you're not recruiting the amount of white cells you need to recruit, mm-hmm. which was the purpose of it releasing mm-hmm. so much cytokine. Uh, and, of, and of course, uh, in this my... is what, mm-hmm. go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, when we looked at the mortality rate early on, which you mentioned right out of the gate, now I hope that people can kind of see why this carries such a high mortality. Um, you know, when you start to strip away one of the most, maybe the most important thing about our homeostasis is the endothelium. When you start to strip that away, all types of, you know, very uh, unfortunate things begin to happen. Yes. And uh, I didn't go into it, but there is a whole system in place that the body has to try to lay down. Uh, there are cells that get laid down to, to replace the endothelium. That uh, There's a whole system that you, you can talk about at length also. Uh, it's not all covered with platelets like I showed. There's an attempt by the body to, to replace the endothelium cells. They're not with other endothelial cells right off. There was some other type of cell, but the body does have a little bit of an avenue to try to uh, patch up these areas of endothelial that are being released and, and separating from from the vessel wall, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know at what rate that happens and how uh, how much reserve we have and how depleted that could be. You know, that's a whole. There's so many topics that you could you could. Sure. Hit. 
Well, I believe you know, that, you know, just I fundamentally believe that uh, that oxygen starvation to the tissue um, will lead, of course, to ever increasing amounts of dysfunction. And that if you can keep the over the total organism alive, keep the circulation going, the antibiotics can get where the antibiotics need to be because you have circulation. Um, all of those things will play a role in being able to really survive sepsis. So um, I do think there's a role for mechanical circulatory support uh, in those patients for no other reason than to keep the, the major organ systems functioning, fed and alive in order to be able to battle whatever the underlying disease is. But once you get into an a, a, an oxygen deficit, a tissue, uh, cellular oxygen debt that you can't overcome it because without that, you will, you have nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you make a point of if you can keep the organism alive and by a significant amount of time, and we can then get the upper hand on the infection and the white blood cells, like I said, the newly recruited white blood cells begin to stop running into and attaching to the pathogens. They no longer release any more cytokines. The pathogens begin to dwindle. They're releasing less and less of their toxins. And we can begin to reverse this process and go back hopefully towards, you know, uh, a non-infectious state. How long does it take before the endothelium regains enough of its function uh, enough of it can be repaired, uh, replaced, whatever the body's process is there, to where at least the endothelium stops with all of its dysfunction. You'd have to ask somebody smarter than me about how long that might take before you get all of these things back in alignment again. Yes, very good point. Um, John, we've, we've run over a little. Thank you so much for your generous time. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and end it here, but we are going to come back and tackle this uh, very topic. You really struck a chord in me and I think in our viewers as well, because this is a big problem that is uh, is is largely uh, not on our radars as perfusionists, mm -hmm. but should be. And I think that we just need to we need to focus on this again. There's no doubt about it. Um, I wanted to thank everyone for coming and watching today. Tomorrow is going to be our very first attempt at streaming live an ECMO simulator, patient monitor, ventilator, uh, recirculation technology. There's going to be a, a multitude of technologies, five or six cameras all trying to work in harmony with each other. And it's been David and Magic's uh, job to get this done. I think they're ready. Um, they have done an ex ex exquisite job. We're gonna practice one time today. Uh, it could be a dumpster fire. I've got my goat, uh, my screaming goat uh, that I have here, just in case uh, it all goes to, to, to a dumpster fire. Uh, You're welcome. But, uh, we're gonna do our very best to make sure that it uh, goes well. I hope you could join us and see it. But uh, with that said, I'm gonna bid you all a good evening and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow morning at eight o'clock for our first ever live simulate ECMO simulation with four simulation scenarios. Um, and uh, uh, I'm hoping it goes well. So 
If it doesn't, it'll be fun to watch. If it does, it'll be informative to watch. So we're looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. John, thank you. Well, Joe, you're pioneering. You're pioneering profusion education. I got to hand it to you on that one. That sounds like a, a an incredible idea. And uh, you know what? Even if you're not totally successful tomorrow, although I, I think you're going to be, uh, you'll learn from it and you will be uh, the next time. So it's I'm going to tune in just to see what it is all you're talking about. <laughs> I, can't even imagine, uh, I can't even imagine what uh, what this is going to look like, but I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. It's going to be interesting. I think you're going to really be impressed. Uh, the, the guys okay. worked for a couple of months putting all yeah. of the technology. You don't see it. You can't, you can't see it. But we have such different stuff now, John, different streaming software. Mm-hmm. We have different ways of bringing people into the, uh, into the meeting without having to use Skype or Zoom or one of those other things. It's all of our own internal uh, stuff. You know, David, from a from a systems perspective, and a uh, and and being able to have these technologies work, and of course, Magic, who 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 makes these things talk to each other and do all of that kind of stuff, um, they've worked for a couple of months, um, and we have a new ECMO simulator from Eigenflow. Uh, which I'm going to be able to show you tomorrow, which I think you're going to find very interesting. It's a great ECMO simulator, does a lot of really neat stuff. Uh, we have a, uh, a new uh, a patient monitor and ventilator where we can simulate uh, COVID patients, ECMO patients, uh, pretty much anything that you want to do with these patients. And uh, being able to show all of these things in a way that I'm hopeful is educational not just one camera moving around but multiple cameras looking at multiple things all at the same time so that the viewer can experience what it would be like to be in an ICU room with an ECMO patient and uh, again you know it's our first time we're going live with it tomorrow we've trialed it a couple of times we've had some uh encouraging outcomes and we've also had we've learned some things from the trials we're going to do it again tonight uh before the guys leave we're going to try it one more time and uh you know i'm not an overly religious guy but i'm going to say some prayers tonight and i'd appreciate it if you all would do the same thing uh because it could be uh, it could be interesting well I look forward to it i hope to uh check it out all right, looking forward to it. John Ingram, thank you very, very much for your expertise. That was an incredibly, incredible, uh, uh, incredibly informative uh, lecture. I, I learned a lot, and uh, it's really got my mind thinking about how we need to pursue this even farther because it's, it's an incredibly complex and interesting uh, topic and phenomenon that occurs to patients. And I think there's some things we can do to benefit our patients that come into our hospitals respectively. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope so. Let's hope Th- it leads to some progress. Thanks, man. I'll see everybody tomorrow morning. Be safe. Thank you, guys.